Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. We have some great news to start the new year off. We got to put out that we made our latest donation from our Amazon promotion. This latest one went to the Veterans Outdoor Advocacy Group, which was started by two former Navy SEALs, one of which is Josh Jesperson, a former Hazard Ground guest. You can go check out his story on episode 59. The Veterans Outdoor Advocacy Group researches, advocates, and promotes legislative solutions to enable outdoor therapy access for veterans as a prescribed option in addition to traditional care. If you want to check them out learn more about them, you can go to their website at www.voag.org, again, for more info. And this donation was made through our Amazon partnership. If you're not familiar how it works, you're clearly not a fan of the Hazard Ground because we've been telling you every week, go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on that Amazon banner there. Do all of your normal Amazon shopping just like you always do it. Whether it's a personal for business, doesn't matter. Just go to hazardground.com first. Click on the Amazon banner right on the homepage or on the sponsors tab. Do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you spend. We donate it right back to some of the charities you've heard featured here, like Veterans Outdoor Advocacy Group. One remind you guys, we really are trying to get to 1,000 YouTube subscribers, also 1,000 on Instagram, 1,000 on Twitter. These are big pushes for us here in 2020. We want to make sure that everybody can be part of the Hazard Ground community and continue to hear these great stories. The only way we do that is by getting the word out there faster to more people. So 1,000 on YouTube, 1,000 on Instagram, 1,000 on Twitter as well, and we will get there. So tell a friend, have them follow, tell them about the Hazard Ground, and certainly help expand that Hazard Ground community. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a retired Army colonel who, after surviving multiple deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Balkans, working in the special operations community, including with 1st Special Operations Forces Delta, She returned to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, only to suffer a biking accident, which ultimately led to the amputation of her leg, and she was the only active-duty female amputee in the United States Army. She is Colonel Retired Patty Collins, joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Colonel, ma'am, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. Interesting story. Most of the amputees we have talked to lost their limb in combat. You, on the other hand, it was a not-so-simple biking accident, but... You know, uh, it's interesting because what you endured afterwards and being the only female amputee on active duty is something remarkable. And so I'm curious to hear about all that. But we'd like to always start at the beginning and tell us how and why you got into the Army. Sure. Um, My story on how I got into the Army is really not very patriotic sounding. Um, I needed money for college. So did I. It was, uh, (laughs) yeah, it was a recommendation on my dad who had never served. and the joke was that he was a used car salesman and an army recruiter in my mind was a used car salesman as well. And, and, uh, and my dad, I thought didn't see the sales pitch coming, but as it turned out, it was one of the best decisions of my life. He was, he was absolutely right. Um, so, you know, that was a pretty simple reason to come into the army. And, um, after my initial assignment to Fort Lewis, Washington, I loved it. I mean, those were my people. I love the mission. Um, I love the adventure and I love the challenge and, and I stayed. 
yeah, 24 and a half years later. Now I got to ask you, I did the same thing. And even though my stepfather was in Vietnam, I you know wanted to do it. And it's probably not prior to the 9-11. This is a pre-9-11 world where people like you and I signed up for the military. I literally had no idea what I was getting into. Did you? No, no. My uncle had served in Vietnam, um, didn't talk much about it. Um, my other uncle had a short stint in the Marine Corps and I, I mean, the TV show MASH, as crazy as it sounds, that was my impression of the army. So good, bad, right, wrong. That's what I thought I was doing. Yeah. So you went through the ROTC program? Absolutely. Yeah. Rutgers university. Ah, right on the banks of the Raritan there. On the banks. Yes. All right. Beautiful stuff. So when you get commissioned, what year is this? 1991. So the Gulf War started in January of that year, the first Gulf War. I found out uh, my branch the night that the Gulf War started, actually. Now, were you like, oh, boy, this might have been a bad idea? No, not at all. Because I think even even then, it's, you know, a, a fairly peaceful time in our country. Um, that's what was ingrained to you is that we have an army for a reason. And should we need that army, then, then we serve, right? So um, that was an exciting time. By the time I came onto active duty in the in the summer of that year, of course, the war was over. Most people were home. And I think my community of peers thought, oh, we missed it. We missed our chance. We're going to do 20 years of, of non-deployments of going to the National Training Center or something like that. What branch did you ultimately end up choosing? Um, I, I chose Signal, and the Army decided that was fine, but I would do two years in air defense artillery first. Ah, and so yeah. I spent my first two years doing Patriot missiles, which was a really exciting time because – Patriot missiles were pretty popular after the first Gulf War. Yeah. So that was kind of a cool thing <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And so, so two years of that, and then I transitioned. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so kind of, as you mentioned, you know, the Gulf War ends, and it's back to life as normal, so to speak, until 9-11. I, I know it's hard to encapsulate a seven- or eight-year period, but what's life like while you're on active duty uh, in the time prior to 9-11? Right. I think after my first assignment, I went to Fort Bragg because, you know, sometimes people think the sun rises and sets there. And, and in a lot of reasons in the Army, it does. Um, and so I think I really cut my teeth there with some um, you had to be pretty tough to survive at a Fort Bragg mentality. And I was I was in 18th Airborne Corps, um, spent a couple of years there. And that's when I was really um, I was approached by some folks that had served in the special operations community as a communicator and said, hey, is this something you'd like to do? Um, and that really piqued my curiosity because I didn't know what opportunities that might look like. I think that's um, it's certainly a challenging environment. Um, things happen pretty quickly. And generally, if, if there's going to be something exciting going on in our world, soldiers from Fort Bragg are going. So that was a great place to start. Uh, my second assignment, um, that's where I initially knew, you know, women could have a role in the special operations community. And so my interest was really piqued there. Um, it took a couple more years before that happened for me, but um, I was a company commander at Fort Bragg, which is, you know, arguably one of the best jobs an army officer can have. Uh -huh. So um, it was a great time. So let me ask you, I mean, you bring up an interesting topic because, again, prior to the 9-11 world, women's roles in the military were much more defined than they are now. I mean, we have women going to ranger school. We clearly have women in combat arms and, and all that. That was never an option for you back then. Were you ever bothered by it? Right. Um, I will say... It was probably evolving, you know, pre 9-11. We just it's not something that you saw regularly in the news. It's not something that was, um, you know, we just didn't hear about. Um, but it certainly was starting to happen um, in, in that special operations community. And I think um, I credit that community because generally the mindset of that group of people is I don't care who you are, where you came from, what you look like, as long as you can perform. 
and as long as you can do your job. So I think they were probably the beginning of the barriers breaking down for women. Um, I think some of the data that we took to really figure out, can women do this? Can we do these things? Probably came from that community. I don't think it is a mystery if we look at, you know, who is the commander of the Maneuver Center of Excellence when women went through ranger school? It was, you know, someone who came from that community that, right. that saw what women could do. So, um, to that end, I, I think they just see what people can do. They look at capabilities of the individual um, because right. it's amazing. You know, if, if anybody who's gone through or has seen any documentary on special forces assessment and selection, you can have these big bulky guys who are the picture, you know, they're built like Adonis and they're the picture of physical specimens and they flunk out and the scrawny little dude makes his way through it because they understand a lot and think a lot differently than what you would assume a special forces guy is supposed to look like. So uh, I, I think they look at the capabilities of the individual and say, there's an asset and there's something we can use and we can make the most of it. It doesn't matter. Like you said, what you look like, where you came from or anything else. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, especially when you come from a support environment, like I did, nobody cared really particularly how fast I ran, as long as I could provide the services that they needed. Right. Mm -hmm. As it turned out, there were some criteria to enter into that community that required me to have a you know certain physical level. But at the end of the day, I had to be smart and I had to be able to provide what the warfighter needed. So you enter into this environment. Are you ever overwhelmed? Uh, I think, you know, one of the phrases that I learned in that community that I use in a lot of parts in life is I never work so hard to be so average um, because everyone there is really good. Yeah. And. I think, um, you know, the imposter syndrome is something that a lot of people experience where they, they're waiting for someone to look around and go, I think, I think they're going to realize that this person isn't good enough to be here, right? We all think that at some point in our lives. So, um, yeah, I certainly, I certainly felt like I was, you know, the duck kicking under the water like crazy to try and keep up. Um, I, like, I, like you, had a, a, you know, stint in the special operations community. My first deployment was was with 5th and 10th group, and I felt the same exact way. Like, you just work so hard not to let anybody down or not to be told yeah. you're not good enough. I, I was never looking to excel. It was like the first time in my military career I was so content being a role player. Like, I was so content yeah. just doing what they told me, asked me to do and not doing any more and not asking for anything more. Like, just because being in that environment elevates you to a level that you didn't know you could be and staying there is so much harder than you ever could have imagined that it's just like you said you just want to do enough to fit in to, to, to almost not stand out yeah um and i think you know i when i when i left the community for the last time and my boss had said what did you learn and my answer to him was sir i could never say no and he said i don't understand what you need and i said you hired me to solve problems for you um, and if I ever came to you and said, no, then I have failed you and I have failed the organization. And he said, well, well, isn't everyone like that? And I said, well, frankly, no. I mean, we have a, we have a fantastic military service with a lot of mo motivated people, but, um, there are people that reach a point where they just say, no, I can't, mm -hmm. I can't do it. Yep. I won't do it. Or it's too hard. Um, and I think being in that community lets you know, like you, you can't say no because people rely on you to make them successful. Now, obviously, you, you have a finite amount of money and you have a finite amount of policies and rules and things like that that you need to follow. But for the most part, um, people want you to be solve you know, for curious yes. and creative and, <laughs> and solve solve problems. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. Great stuff. So where are you on 9-11? Uh, 9-11, I was at um, I was actually at Fort Belvoir. Um, working in a similar community, and um, I was working in a, a standards and training type of 
you know, organization. And I remember the planes hitting. Um, I had a sister in New York City at the time. And uh, I remember that I couldn't call my sister and she couldn't call me, but we could both call my mom. So mom was kind of the relay of like, hey, the whole family's okay. Um, And the next day, no one could get to work, right? Because we closed every installation down, which which Mm -hmm. we really didn't know how to do. And so I remember riding my bike to work. Um, which is some foreshadowing of, I was, I was generally a bicycle commuter <laughs> and I got to work before everyone else. Um, but, but I knew like my world and our country had changed and it was never going to be the same again. I had no idea that, you know, 19 years later we would still be here, but, um, that was a turning point for certainly our military service in our country. So at that point, did you know, like, hey, we're going to war? Were you one of those people? Because I remember it happening. Like, I was like, I knew we we're going to be doing something, but like, war never really dawned on me until like a week later. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know, in some communities, it was like, okay, we we want to go right now, um, and and we just didn't have enough information to know what do I need and where do I need it and how does that happen? And honestly, for me, um, my first deployment was not to Iraq or Afghanistan, but to Sarajevo. Um, and there were terrorists tied to 9-11 in Sarajevo. In Bosnia, so, yeah. Um, yeah, so it took, it took a year before I went anywhere, but, um, and then you're just kind of waiting. Like, when's it, you know, when's it, when do I have the opportunity to serve? And so when do you actually get to that the first deployment? For uh, deployment I think there? it was the fall of 02. Okay. Um, I went to, yeah, I went to Sarajevo, um, and I worked on a task force that was looking for personnel indicted for war crimes. Um, and then as it turned out, you, you uncovered different amounts of intelligence or information that leads you potentially in a different direction of maybe we needed this person for X, but, um, he's also dirty for Y and Z. Um, so that was, that was the first way that, that I was able to have a small role in contributing toward counterterrorism. Your first deployment to the Middle East happens when? I, the spring of 06. Okay. Yeah. So where are you going? What are you told? What's your mission? And by the way, is all this out of Fort Bragg or you're, you're bouncing back and forth? Where, where are you deploying uh, from? I'm, I'm bouncing back and forth. Okay. Um, the Bosnia rotation was not, but uh, my first time to Iraq, I was um, serving in SFODD. Okay. Um, I was going over to be the task force J6 or communications officer. Um, our deployments were shorter, yep. um, but generally the plan was at the time you go for 13 weeks, you come home for 26 and then you just repeat. Um, my repeat didn't necessarily happen as advertised and, um, we'll, we'll get into that. So, but I was a, you know, I was a information technology for the whole task force and, um, that happened pretty quick. At that point in time, we had just really started integrating, um, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance feeds. So video feeds, um, to the desktop of, you know, of leaders, wherever they wanted to see it. Um, I remember one of the first things we were challenged with is, I want the feed that's on this aircraft or this helmet cam or this whatever, and I want it wherever I travel in the world. Um, and I, rem- I remember that, and, and my boss telling me that was what we were supposed to figure out, and I felt clueless, um, and I, I thought, how, how are we going to do this? Um, so obviously there were some smart people that helped us, and, and, um, and we were able to watch that happen pretty quickly. So that was, that was a really proud moment for me that we were able to do that. What's the deployment tempo like for you uh, while you're there in in that special operations community? Yeah, um, we'd like to say we own the night. Mm -hmm. So um, I would come to work around 2.30, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. 
And, you know, the first things you do as an, as an IT person is, hey, do all the phones work, do all the computers work, et cetera. Um, so you're doing all the checks and services. Um, I think our I think our first meeting of the evening was at 6 p.m. And that was a task force wide meeting. And then operations would really start as soon as as soon as the sun went down. Um, generally, people were back inside the wire, as we say, by six or seven in the morning. And then you clean up and then you have scheduled any routine, you know, maintenance or things like that. And I was generally headed, you know, headed towards some sleep around seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning. And, um, you know, wake up a couple hours later, try and get a little physical training in and then and then do it all over again. And that was a 24 seven. So I think that's part of the reason why your deployments were a little bit shorter, because when you came home, you were you were smoked. You're yeah. pretty tired. Yeah. Um, after the Iraq deployment, what's next? Um, so six weeks after I came home, I was in car riding my bicycle to work. Oh, OK. Yeah. So it happened that quickly. <laughs> it happened pretty quickly. Um, I I came home. Um, life was pretty good. Um, I came out on a lieutenant colonel promotion list on a Friday, and um, I will say it's a moment of not being shy and self confidence. I had a I had a, a good you know a good tour. I had a good evaluation. Um, I was selected early for promotion, and so um, I was I was a little more full of myself than I probably want to admit. Um, and I was hit two days later. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, in fairness, I've been there. It's, it's, it's a great day. You remember when you, That's when right. you see your name on the list, you remember when your name, right. when you, when you get the letter that you've been selected for promotion. I mean, it doesn't matter what rank, I mean, you, you get that information, it's always memorable. So, uh, I don't want you to feel like you should overstate the amount of pride you should have in that. It's, it's, listen, uh, for those who are non-military listening, at least in the army, the percentages, um, you're talking about less than, you know, 13% of the entire force reached the rank of 05. In, in all their careers. So it's a small, finite number of people who get that high. And, and it is something worthy of, of, you know, kind of patting yourself on the back on or at least feeling pride about. So yeah. uh, but obviously that did not lead to you. Uh, that pride wasn't what got you hit by the car. But No, no. But it, it, I do find it ironic you, because you always look at things in hindsight and you always think like, hey, was there was there hidden meaning or message in what happened or why it happened or you know, part of something bigger. And so, um, I just find it interesting. You know, I was in a moment that I was, I was thinking, you know, the world is my oyster. I'm going to get command, whatever battalion I want. And I was, I was pretty excited about that. Um, it didn't work out that way, but you know, it still turned out great. So. All right. So take me through that morning. It's a normal morning. You're getting up, you're, you're bicycling to work, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, and it was probably, how far of a bike ride is it? Um, maybe it was, 12, 14 miles. Not, I mean, not terribly far. Um, also, you know, I was still working in the community where you could do physical training on your own. So there was no 630 formation or anything like that. So this was probably seven o'clock in the morning. Um, I was a mile and a half from work and um, a car hit me from behind, um, struck me in the back of my left heel of my shoe. Um, and then the next thing I knew I was, you know, lying on the road, um, fully conscious. And, you know, like any, silly cyclist, your first question is, is my bike okay? Um, which my bike was completely not okay, but, but more importantly, I definitely wasn't okay. So, um, no head trauma, really no injury to any other part of my body other than my, my lower left leg. And, um, so, so it was a, but yeah. Uh, how does he hit your lower left leg and you like not see, I'm just picturing it. Like, was it like a T-bone or he comes oh, up he from coming, behind? He was coming from behind me. Yeah. So, so but, a cyclist, you know, riding with the flow of traffic. Um, and he just came up from behind and it, uh, I mean, historically, it's a road that people travel super fast. 
Um, the road now has a bike lane. Um, I, I don't know if I had anything to do with that or not, but I'm, I'm grateful it's there. Um, so pretty narrow shoulder. And, uh, you know, in defense of the person that hit me, he wasn't on a cell phone, um, probably driving too fast. And, um, you know, I can say all these things now. I certainly went through the phase of being pretty angry and um, thinking he was a careless person. But, um, you know, we've probably all had momentary lapses of paying attention or whatever the case may be. So, um, yeah, so that's what happened. Um, the person behind the driver that hit me was a coworker, um, and everyone stopped right away, right? Um, you know, an ambulance was called. I, I made it to Womack Army Medical Center probably in 15 minutes. Um, I'm in the emergency room and, and now the pain has started to set in like, wow, is, this it, is I mean, is there blood? Right. Like, is it a um, compound fracture kind of deal? Like, what are we looking at? It's a, it's a compound fracture. My tib and fib were sticking out kind of the back of my lower calf. Okay. Um, gross. Got it. Th- there surprisingly was not much blood. <laughs> and I think it was when I actually looked at it, I was like, Ooh, wow, this should really hurt. And then, and then all of a sudden it did really hurt. Um, so I'm sitting in the emergency room. Um, and our unit chaplain comes in and now I start to get worried because I was like, Oh my gosh, are, how hurt am I that the chaplain is here? And he was like, no, no. Is he coming to give you last rites? Yeah. Yeah. He goes, no, I was, I was visiting a family member and I heard you were here. So I just, I just wanted to come down. Um, talk yeah, about an awakening, surgery. right? Yeah. Yeah. I went into surgery really fast. Um, and then I spent two days in the hospital. Um, I mean, I had a really high quality surgeon, but he told me, um, in recovery, he said, it's the worst ankle break I've ever seen. You have no cartilage left. Um, in six months, you're going to beg me to fuse your ankle because you're going to be in so much pain walking. And in my mind, I, my initial thought was your doctor, you're over-exaggerating is I'm, I'm, I had a race on my calendar for like a month later. I was like, no, 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 I have, I have this race coming up. Um, you know, I had the external fixator on, I was, I was kind of a mess. Um, and I was in denial for, for a good bit of time. And, uh, and he was right. Yeah. Okay. When you wake up from surgery mm-hmm. and you look down at your left leg, what are the thoughts yeah. running through your mind when you're in the room by yourself? I think I still thought it's, it's just a really bad break. I didn't really um, process um, life for this leg is never going to be as it once was. Um, so, you know, I was, I was pretty upset. I had never really had any serious injury in my life, you know, out for a couple of weeks here or there you know, injuries from cycling or running or whatever, but I, I never really had anything bad. I, I had, I never broke, I broke my nose and that was it. I had never had no broken bones. I'd never had stitches. Um, so this was a pretty big deal, but I didn't, I still didn't really appreciate what was going to lie ahead for me. Is there a moment where you're sitting there thinking, holy shit, like I survived a deployment to Iraq, you know, I'm with the baddest unit on the face of the earth in the most dangerous part of the world, doing the most dangerous things, only to come home and have my career taken away by a bike. No, I mean, there were a lot of bad, dark thoughts, but that that was not one of them. Um, I, for a long time, I wouldn't say a why me or this isn't fair, um, only to realize that you've got to go through that process. So once I got there, and it probably took about, 12 or 14 weeks before I was in a pretty dark place. And I allowed myself to like really process, um, what I felt was my identity had been taken away. Right. Right. I I said earlier, um, I was hired because I was smart, not because I was fit, but that was not a lesson that I knew until after my injury. Um, my whole identity was, you know, I could kind of hang with most of the fellas and that's why I had these opportunities 
um, not really appreciating. Like I, I had to, I had a brain, you know, I knew how to use it. I was pretty good with people. Um, so I, I obsessed about my, when I realized, Hey, my, my active life is not going to come back the way it once did. That was a really, really hard thing for me. Um, depression came knocking on my door. And I think the other reason that I suffered from depression was ever since I was 14 years old, when I had a bad day or I just needed to go de-stressed, I would go for a run, right? Or I would do some sort of physical activity, right, yeah. ride my bicycle in the woods. And so um, not only had I lost that ability, but I lost my outlet. And I didn't, I didn't have any tools to know what I was supposed to do to handle that. And so that um, – and then, and then, you know, kind of depression sunk in. And then when I realized – and I was literally Googling one night all my signs and symptoms because I knew that I just wasn't – I wasn't where I wanted to be and I wasn't, I was in a dark place. Um, and previously, if you said, um, who gets depressed, I would say, you know, soccer moms and weak people that does not happen to your average person. And so, um, that was my most valuable lesson learned through all of it is, you know what, things can happen to anybody and none of us is immune to any of it. There's certainly things that we can do to help ourselves, but, um, it's going to knock on your door and you might not be ready for it. So, that was a great lesson learned. Um, and we're, we're probably jumping ahead to like, I learned a ton of lessons from losing my leg. I can say now it was, it was the best gift I ever received. And it was really the process of going through it. Taught me some super hard life lessons that I needed to learn. And I'm grateful to have learned them. Um, you know, in my mind, I would have had it like the, you know, the lesser version, but I'm a little hard headed. So maybe I needed the whole, you know, the whole Monty of losing my leg to learn them. Um, yeah. So that, so that was about the 12 month mark. And then, and then fortunately I confided in a coworker who said, Hey, you know what? We, we have mental health where we work and there's tons of people that go sit on couches. So let me walk you down to talk to one of our counselors. And, um, I think I was just so devastated in where I was. I, there was no shame for me at all. And and then when I knew, Hey, there's lots of unit members that go and talk to someone about what they're thinking or feeling. And, um, there wasn't a stigma, um, in that organization at all. So I was very fortunate to, to have great care. You know, you had mentioned a couple of times that you were in a dark place and you had dark thoughts. Uh, would you be mm -hmm. willing to share some of those thoughts? Um, yeah, yeah. I will say suicide was definitely not a thought, but um, I remember thinking, I wish I could just go to sleep and wake up when this is over. And I didn't know what over looked like. Um, but things like, um, I lost the ability to find joy in, in really anything for a period of time. I couldn't watch, you know, a 30 minute sitcom of a funny TV show and laugh. Um, I was having a lot of difficulty sleeping. I would, you know, lie in bed and kind of obsess about what's going to happen. How's this going to end? When's this going to end? What am I supposed to do? You know, almost, uh, the pleading with God, like, Hey, if you just help me get through this, I will do whatever it is I'm supposed to do. I'll, I'll learn whatever lesson I'm supposed to learn. Um, and it just wasn't happening. And so, um, yeah, it took, it took the courage to say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go get help because I'm not okay. Um, and I think some of my coworkers definitely knew it. They're like, you are such a normal, happy, happy go lucky kind of person, but that person is not here right now. So what's up? Um, yeah, those are some of my sad thoughts. Okay. So let's talk about sort of the rehab. I mean, you know, all of this, you get out of the hospital for when? Like how long are you in the hospital for? Two two days, not long at all. Okay. Yeah. So a lot um, of this depression is happening on your couch. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and at work, because I was back at work pretty quickly. Like, are you on yeah. crutches or are you on one of them wheelie things at the time? Um, so, yeah. So I was on crutches for a super long time. The external fixator came off at the six or seven week mark. And then I was in um, a boot, but I couldn't be weight bearing for another six weeks. Um, and then by the time I was weight bearing, um, and I was in physical therapy pretty regularly. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't, it was, it was tough. It was tough. And the doctor was right that, um, by the time I was able to give up crutches, my walks were extremely limited in duration. Um, and so I like to use the analogy of, I couldn't do a trip to the grocery store without crutches because it was, it was too painful. Um, so, and I wasn't going to take narcotics. That was just not something I was willing to do because I didn't want to look forward to a life of that. That just was not, that was off the table. So, um, probably around the four or five month bark, I saw a foot and ankle specialist and I said, Hey, I want to amputate. Um, now my first orthopedic surgeon that I said that to said, I can understand why a good amputation might be right for you, but you don't meet the criteria for an amputation. You have some bone loss, not enough. You have some nerve damage, not enough. Um, and you can still accomplish your activities of daily living. And I said, if I were, you know, a 65 year old woman, that might be true, but I was 37 at the time I was in the early stages of adopting, um, a child. And I said, I don't want to be the mom that passes out oranges on the sideline. I want to be the mom who's the assistant coach. Um, and so, he said, yeah, I get all those things, but he's like, I won't do it for you. And so I was wow. pretty crushed. And um, now, was, this I, an, was this an army doctor who told you this? this? Was, yeah, this was an army doctor. And um, and so this was 2006, 2007 timeframe. So the Walter Reed scandal had just broke. Now, I was still at Fort Bragg. I never went to a warrior transition unit or any sort of rehab like that. I stayed right at Fort Bragg. Um, and my unit said, well, we're going to get you a second opinion. So I went to see another army doctor. Um, I went to see Dr. Kurt Allitz, who was an orthopedic surgeon at West Point, and he was the foot ankle specialist. And, you know, he looked at my film and gave me an exam, and we spoke for, for a long time, I mean, multiple hours. And he said, um, I understand why – I understand what you want to do because I, I understand you as a person, not you as an X-ray or an MRI. Um, and if this is what you want to do, then I will amputate your leg. So – um, so that decision was made probably in the spring of 07 and we were going to do it at Womack army medical center. And the chief of orthopedics there said, not in my hospital, this is not going to happen in my hospital. What? So, and, and again, this is the Walter Reed scandal had broke where there was a whole lot of scrutiny placed on, um, soldier care and, and what's going on in hospitals and things like that. And so, um, I think elective amputation is becoming more common now, but this is, you know, 13 years ago and people were doing limb salvage for multiple years. And I was, I was shy of a year. And so some people thought this was a very aggressive and wanted to try a fusion first and see how it went. Um, and so I wound up flying to West Point, um, on a Monday morning, I had my pre-op Tuesday, amputation Wednesday, flew home Friday, through Newark airport. Like I wouldn't even use a wheelchair. I was on crutches. I, I would not take anyone's help. I was very stubborn and I never looked back. I was like, this is it. This is, this is all going to be good. Um, I was fortunate in that my first prosthetist was in my surgery with me and, um, yeah. 
it was pretty smooth sailing after that. Okay, um, um, you're making this sound really easy, and it's not. So that's kind of it, <laughs> no, it, it wasn't. I, <laughs> I mean, you're going through this rather quickly. I'm like, slow down for a second. There's there's, there's a lot of okay. one red tape that we we missed. We missed, and two, um, it's not that easy just to cut off a limb and say, okay, yeah, I'm fine. Uh, so yeah. let's. <laughs> so they when when they agree to amputate, like yeah, it, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering. I can't, I'm not in your shoes, so I can't even have empathy from this standpoint. But it's like the decision to cut off a limb is like, okay, now life is never ever going to be the same. Like, even if there right. was a chance of life being the same, you've now eliminated that chance because now you're starting a new normal. And so right. I, I guess I'm wondering through all the depression and everything else, as, yeah. as much of a struggle as that was, was there any of that struggle equal in the decision to amputate? Depression was way worse than a decision to amputate. Absolutely. Yeah. The decision to amputate, and this will sound trite, but um, so like put in the back of your mind now, it's been several months of me with not a lot of physical activity, a lot of physical pain. Um, I'm at the 15 year mark of my military career, maybe on the verge of 16. Um, I'm not done serving. I still want to contribute, but I am done with this pain and I am done with the lack of mobility. And so it came down to what do you want out of your life and what are you willing to do? Um, and then the decision became clear, um, not easy, but clear. Um, so yeah, there were people that definitely thought I was crazy and I didn't, I mean, my, my immediate chain of command, of course, knew I was doing this, but I didn't advertise this, you know, broad, right. <laughs> broadly. Did, that's what, what did I your family doing. say? Um, you know, my mom was, awesome because she she was nervous for me and I you know I lost my dad when I was pretty pretty young in my army career so um my mom was pretty great and she's like I don't quite understand it but um I respect what you want to do and I I know I raised a you know a bright kid and if you've done your research and you've thought this through then I support the decision you make um so you know she was there at the hospital and um I was married at the time and, um, my, unfortunately now ex-husband wasn't quite at that place. I mean, he was supportive, but it was just harder for him to wrap his mind around. Um, and that's not a slight on him by any means. Why um, do you think that was? Um, I think it's some of it, I think is if, if you're not walking in those shoes, it's very hard. It's very hard to see it. Right. It's very hard to, to say, what would I do in your position? Um, right. so, you know, exceptional person nonetheless, but, um, I don't think that he was, he was quite as excited as I was. I was, this was a countdown of, I can't wait until this happens so I can turn the page and, um, start that rehab chapter. Because in my mind, um, even though it could have gone horribly wrong, right. There are a lot of things that go poorly. Um, I wasn't in my mind, it wasn't going to go poorly. It was going to go well. And it was going to be, it was the right choice for me. And it's certainly not the right choice for everyone, but for me, it was so. Okay. Yeah. So when you are going through this decision, any thought at all of backing out? Nope. Like not even as you're being wheeled into the operating room, are you sitting there going, last chance, last chance I can get out of this? Like nothing. No, no, because what I had was, you know, not functional. Right. And I was okay. like, doing nothing isn't an answer. So I guess the solution was really, do you want to try an ankle fusion or do you want to try cutting your leg off? Right. Um, so I was like, let's go. Let's do it. Com yeah. Compare for me the thought uh, that I asked you about before. You wake up from the first surgery in the hospital and you look down at your left leg. 
What are you thinking? After the amputation, you wake up and you look down and the bottom of your left leg is missing. What are you yeah. thinking? What, what, what are those yeah. two juxtapositions? My, fir- my first thought, like, in the, you're going to, like, think I'm ridiculous. My first, like, look down was like, okay, they took the right one. All right. We're good so far, <laughs> right? <laughs> that was, like, literally my first thought was like, okay, it's the right one. Um, yeah, it looked like, okay, it's, it's gone and it's, it's never coming back. And, and, you know, that was kind of the interesting thing is that um, people have said, like, well, well, you know it's never coming back. And I was like, I mean, of course I know it's not coming back. You think that? I haven't had that thought. Um, I didn't really dwell on it's gone. I just didn't. I don't know why. I just I didn't dwell on that. I was like, okay, what let's what what does the next day look like? So, you know, the next day I'm up in a walker kind of maneuvering around. You know, I, I know this isn't a trip to the dentist where they take your tooth out and you see it, but did they show you the foot? Because like, that's me. I'm like, nope. can I just see it? They, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. Um, they didn't save it for me. Um, okay. They did. One last um, picture of my it, foot before I say goodbye, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, they sent it to kind of some sort of research university to, you know, really look at like cartilage damage and things like that. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, getting fitted for the prosthesis. What's that whole process like? Yeah, so a little bit of a unique situation in that my first prosthetist actually worked um, at my unit. Now, he had lost his leg in Somalia, um, and he stayed until 20 years. And then he went to school to become a prosthetist, and he did that for a couple of years full-time. And then he decided, hey, I, I like prosthetics, but I don't like the business side of things. Um, he he went back to our organization, and he was teaching advanced skills. So he taught you know shooting and driving and different skills to prep for deployments. Um, and literally on the side in his garage, he built prosthetics. Um, at the time I was the third, probably his third patient in the organization. Um, and that's kind of the other thing is that I worked with, um, four amputees who were still serving and still, still, uh, not all of them were still deploying, but at least two of them were still deploying. So it wasn't scary to me because I saw them at, at, you know, a year later, two years later, three years later, so when I was considering this decision, I had very real people to talk to every day and they were great. So, um, Brad was my prosthetist and, um, you know, he pushed me pretty hard and I don't think I realized it because, um, you don't see what everyone else is doing. You only see what you're doing. And so, um, at the five week mark, he cast me for my first prosthetic, um, I should like my side note is I missed 10 days of work because once I got off narcotics, I could drive. And if I could drive, I could go to work. So on day 11, I went back to work on my, you know, pair of shorts and my half a leg. And um, I didn't have a prosthetic yet. And so that was really the first time you're walking down the hall or you're crutching down the hall. And people were like, whoa, you really did it. This is insane. But but by that point, I had been in the organization for two and a half years. Everyone knew my story. So it was like a big family. So it was pretty cool to go back to work. Um, so I get measured or cast for my first prosthesis and it was literally at work. And, um, and then I got my first prosthetic at about five and a half weeks. And it's a big kind of ugly plastic thing because you go through a lot of limb change over time. And so he put it on me and I had crutches and I walked around his office And then I looked at him and I said, I'm going to put my crutches down. And he said, okay. And then I, you know, I kind of shuffled around a little bit more. 
And I said, okay. And there were, there were coworkers there. So it was not like I couldn't have this private moment. And frankly, I, I mean, I liked having them there because this was family at this point. And um, I said, well, how long am I supposed to wear this? And he said, wear it until you can't stand it. Then sit down, take it off, look at your limb, make sure you don't have any skin breakdown or redness or blisters, and then put it back on and keep repeating. And that was like, that was my prescription from him. And I'm like, okay. So, um, probably within two weeks, I didn't, I would, I, I used crutches for like two days and then I would leave them in the car, like just in case. Um, so at the, probably a two week mark, I was probably wearing it 16 hours a day. Okay. Um, which was highly abnormal. And I didn't know that. Um, it wasn't until I started meeting some folks that went through Walter Reed, um, and their protocol is just different. Now, I'll caveat that with there was nothing else wrong with me. I didn't have, you know, nerve damage. I didn't have a traumatic brain injury where I maybe didn't know that I had, you know, redness or blisters or whatever. I, I, I could feel, I had all my feeling. Um, so it's not as if I was a risk of you can't wear it long enough because you won't feel pain. Um, and then I think at about the four or five month mark, um, because I begged and clamored like a, you know, an annoying child that I wanted a running blade. And so then he made me a running blade and um, started running. I mean, not far, not fast, not pretty <laughs> shortly thereafter. Right, a couple um, of things here. Let me ask you. Hang on one second. Yeah. Um, the depression you had, is it as simple to say is it went away the minute your leg got amputated? Your foot, your ankle? No, no? Okay. definitely not. Definitely not. Okay. Um, it was it was gone before then, for sure. Okay, it was. All right. But um, I took an antidepressant for a couple of months. Um, I went to therapy every other week for a couple of months. Um, and part of it was, you know, I, I had a lot of sleeplessness, so getting, like, my sleep back on track. Um, it, because nobody was willing to entertain an amputation when I wasn't, like, right between the ears. Sure, that um, makes sense. And so, you know, I call it my trip down crazy lane, and... Um, I will share that story with anyone because that was, that was a really hard thing for me. And that is, it's more common than we realize. Um, yeah, just out, and, just out of curiosity, how, how crowded is crazy lane these days? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think, I'm sure I it's a traffic jam. Company. Yeah, you're in good company if you're on crazy lane. Um, and I think the, the, one of my big fears was what if this happens again? What if I get depressed again? And I had um, two pretty good friends that had both experienced postpartum depression. And they said, you know what? You know what all your signs and symptoms are. So you know how to respond to it. You've, right. you know, you've learned some techniques. You know that you know, if, you, if you need chemistry to help it, then, then that's there. You have a therapist. Like All those things are at your disposal. Um, so don't, don't worry about it. Um, and, and I will say it, it hasn't, it hasn't come back. I mean, sir, you have a sad time here or there, but, um, you know, if you're, you know, if you're feeling down for whatever reason, um, there's some things that you do or people you talk to, or, you know, go do some physical activity, whatever your particular methodology is, um, that you can do that. Um, but certainly there's no shame. You know, if I need to go sit on a couch again, then, then I'll go sit on the couch again. That's, that's fine. That's pretty normal. When you first get the ability to get up and start running again, I know you said it was clumsy and it wasn't easy, but mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is that, that had to be a spirit uplifter. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, and I say that it's, you know, I grew up as a high school runner, not a great runner, but it's something that I loved for sure. It was really my first, um, my first endurance sport. Um, and so to, to lose that 
and then to get that gift again is pretty amazing because if we think about you know most americans like when we're kids and we learn to run what are you like two three whatever you don't remember what that felt like you don't remember how that felt um so to lose it and then get it back is pretty awesome like that was a gift that i i got to see what it was like to get it back as an adult um yeah that was pretty great what were some of the things people were saying to you after you amputated that sort of stick out with you, whether they were uplifting or somewhat insulting or do you remember any of that? Um, most of it was super positive. Like that, you know, I know that had to be a really crazy to sit that hard decision. Um, you've really, you know, done well with it. And, and I think, um, you know, I am a spiritual person and I will say like, I was, I was chosen to have this happen to me because I could handle it. And I don't like the word inspirational. It's kind of, weird to me to people say oh you're such an like it's not an inspiration for me to go grocery shopping in a pair of shorts right that's called life (laughs) um but if someone can like look at me and say wow um you know if patty can go run a couple miles today clearly i can remove some of the excuses in my own life then then that's okay that's fine if if you want to call that inspiring that's okay um but just living life is kind of kind of weird. Um, when I, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, when I was a battalion commander at Fort Hood, um, my sergeant major used to shame people, um, who couldn't run particularly well. (laughs) I know where you're going. Look at the boss, (laughs) right? Look at the boss. She's twice your age and she's significantly faster. Like, what's your problem? And I was like, sergeant major, like, I know what you're trying to do, but that's maybe not the way to get there. You know, (laughs) maybe there's some other motivational techniques. Um, I think some of the funny things are, I mean, Fort Hood's a good example. I was a battalion commander at Fort Hood. Um, you know, that's an installation with 30,000 people. Every single person who ran in the morning knew who I was, but I only knew really my battalion and maybe, you know, a handful of other people. So you cannot hide in a crowd anymore. And, um, that's the only downer to me is I like that I could, you know, walk into a place and just sort of like blend into the room. Um, and for a while I wouldn't, it's, I mean, in particular, I wouldn't wear, um, I wouldn't wear a skirt to church for about a year because I didn't want the, what I thought was pity. Um, and probably some of that was, I wasn't ready to super like really own what you have. And I don't remember exactly when I got over it, but I was like, you know what, this is who you are. And if you want to wear a skirt or you want to wear a pair of shorts, like it's Fayetteville, North Carolina, like just, you know, just own this because this is who you are and it's never going to change. So um, people were generally like super supportive. Um I am not now, I mean, 13 years later, I am not aware of people looking at me like, you know, you walk into an elevator and someone's just going to glance at your leg. I don't, I'm not aware of that anymore, but, you know, friends will point that out to me. They're like, that, you know, person was totally like staring at your leg and it doesn't, it doesn't bother me really at all. Um, Did anybody ever mistake you for losing that leg in combat? Um, The funny thing is that I am I am rarely asked if I ever even served in the military. Oh, really? Um, yeah, which I, I find that like kind of funny because I didn't just serve. I served nine more years after I lost my leg. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but people rarely mistake, rarely say like, are you a veteran? Right. Um, and that's, that's fine. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. Um, I mean, there's a part of me that if, if someone is going to say, are you a veteran? I'm always quick to say yes, but this didn't happen in combat. And maybe it shouldn't matter, but I never want to misrepresent what happened to me. No, and that's fair. I mean, I, I, listen, for what it's worth, that's 
the right way to do it because sure. there's nothing worse than somebody in our line of work misrepresenting what they are and what yeah. they've done. And you and I have been doing this for 20 years and yeah. we've certainly seen our fair share of people do that for reasons that are inexplicable. Right. right. I mean, the, right. a guy wearing a Ranger tab who never went to Ranger school. It's like, what the hell are you thinking? Like there, there's, yeah. there is nothing worse in our line of work than misrepresenting yourself as something you're not. It, it's sure that it, it's, you know, people call it stolen valor, but it's just beyond that. We, we pride ourselves on in integrity, right? Just, is, yeah. I was going mean, to say, I mean, it's just, it's just lack of integrity. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, or, it, and I can dig it deeper and say, um, what about your personality or, or your lack of self-confidence leads you, leads you to think you have to lie about who you are. Yeah. And, right? and just, like people are going to respect you are. more. I mean, it's, it's just a weird anyway. So it just, it always blew my mind that people would do that stuff. Um, but yeah. so as you continue on the military career, when do you get to a point where you know you're going to retire? Um, I think I, so I had, um, I went to Afghanistan for a year. I came home. I so came you went to Afghanistan as, a, as an amputee. Yeah. I mean, let's, I'm, I'm an IT person. It's not like I'm out digging foxholes no. or assaulting hills, right? I'm, <laughs> it's ones and zeros. Yeah. Um, I went to Afghanistan in 2009. Um, I was working in the Pentagon and then um, General McChrystal was nominated to be the next commander of um, ISAF forces. And he asked me if I wanted to go. And my initial thought, I initially said, no, I really, I really, I had, unfortunately I had recently gone through a divorce. I had a little boy at this point. Um, I said, I really, I really don't want to leave. It's not a good time. Um, and that was fine. And then two weeks later I got an email from his exec who said, can you come over and help us with communications? And I said, sure. And then initially it was like, come over for two months. Um, and my two months turned into 10 and that was perfectly fine. Um, I was honored to do it. And, um, I mean, I could have said, I want to go home at any point, but I was never going to say that right. I mean, because, you know, why would you like you're, you're going to serve, you're going to do a job. So I did that. And then I commanded a battalion. Then I came back to DC to go to the war college. Um, and I knew generally I wanted to stay in DC. I didn't want to move anymore. My, my son was with his dad in DC at that point. Um, and I said this, I'm not moving anymore. I'm not leaving him anymore. So um, yeah, 20, 24 and a half years. Okay. Hold on a second. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned before that you were going to adopt. So you adopted a baby while you were an amputee. I guess, what does your son ask you about your leg? He has never known me with two legs. Right. So that's, um, what, that's what I was going with. I mean, like he walks around, you know, as a young kid, you become aware of the world and, you know, you see everybody has two legs and you look at mommy and mommy only has one. And so what does he say to you? It's interesting when he was super young, um, when it was time to take a bath, you know, I would take a bath with him when he was really little and I would take off my leg and I would hop to the tub. And so he thought that you hopped on one foot when it was time to take a bath. Oh. So he just didn't know any different. Right? That is he priceless. He'd be mortified hearing this now. He's almost 13. Um, but he, so he, he hopped on one leg to get into the bath, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, we, I've never misrepresented or anything. So you, you answer the questions with, with, with an age appropriate answer for them at the time. Right. And so even if he's known, he's always known he was adopted. Um, and so the questions just become different and more thoughtful as he becomes more mature. Right. So, um, he's never asked me how hard was that decision to make? Um, that's probably coming and that, and I'll tell him, you know, exactly what I told you. Um, but it, he doesn't know anything different. My mom has one leg. That's just, that's his life. Yeah. Patty, it's an incredible range of emotions. 
um, you know, from highs to lows to, yeah. you know, everything in between. I mean, do you look back on this as, as a roller coaster ride at times? I don't really look at it as a roller coaster ride. I think that because I feel learned... like I'm on it with you right now. I mean, like <laughs> the, the you know we started the joy of getting promoted to what happened to your leg to the darker part of depression to getting out of it to amputee to running again to you know bringing uh, raising a son and all that. Like it's woof. yeah, it's yeah. a lot. I think um, I don't really look at it as a roller coaster. Like that's life, right? And nobody has the perfect textbook. Everything is great life. Um, and, and that's, that's okay. Like, you know, learning my, one of my friends gave me a book when I was like super depressed and it was called learning to dance in the rain. Um, and it was, it really kind of gave you some thoughts on like how to be present and be find joy wherever you are, even if, even if you're not in a joyful place. Um, and so that kind of, I'm not always good at it and not super grounded all the time, but that kind of gives you pause and makes you think about there's joy everywhere around us. Maybe it's not happening to me right this moment, but it's here. So I'm going to find it. Do you ever stop and think about what your career would be like? Not your life necessarily, your career, had you not gotten into the accident and, and ultimately amputated? I don't think it would have been any different. Really? Why? Yeah. I think partly because the community where I was assigned when it happened, they were so intentional about never putting a barrier on me. And when I, even when I went to my surgeon and said, okay, I want to run and I want to jump out of airplanes again and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, I got to do all those things because nobody said you can't or you shouldn't. Um, and so maybe I went further in my career because I was different. I I don't know. Maybe, maybe I wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't have been an 06. Um, I I don't think it would have been that different. I think more people know who I am now because I have a different story, but I don't, and I would like to think that I was a better leader because of some of the, you know, not so great things that I went through. I think maybe I was more empathetic to, you know, some of the situations my soldiers and leaders were in, but I don't think it would have been different. Not really. No, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, I'm not a judge of it by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, you know, the, the answer seems pretty, consistent with what uh, your experience and, and what I've deduced from you so far in the, you know, almost hour that we've been talking. Uh, yeah. The one thing I, I didn't mention that I want to throw in here is for the listeners is that you are actually a Paralympian and a triathlete. Yeah. So yeah. was this something that you started after the amputation or I know you you said you would like to run and you were doing races, mm-hmm. but were you a triathlete prior to the amputation? Yeah. yeah I was a triathlete before the amputation. Um, and then near the end of my career, um, triathlon became a Paralympic sport. And, and we, I think this was announced in 2012 and they said 2016 will be the first time paratriathlon will be com- competed, um, in Rio de Janeiro. And so part of the, I knew I was going to retire, but part of the catalyst I will say is I knew that I probably needed some dedicated time to train. And so I retired at the end of 15 and I said, I'm taking 2016 off to train full time. So I, I did, I took a year off and, um, lived on my pension, which, um, from a financial standpoint, isn't the smartest thing to do living in the DC area, no. but it's, it's doable, right? You can do it if it's, you know, well, just... yeah, if you're living in a small shack in Northeast DC, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I did that and, um, I felt super fortunate in that I had um, amazing athletes as teammates, which were 
are all good friends to this day. Um, amazing coaches and what an opportunity, right? I mean, I was 47 years old when I went to the Paralympics. Um, that's a pretty awesome experience. And, um, even the process of getting there and just kind of getting to race, I've traveled as much around the world in a couple of years of triathlon than I, than I did in the army. So that's pretty neat. Um, you know, met people from all walks of life and, how cool is that to say I got to represent my country in, you know, two significantly different ways. That's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. That's fantastic. Thanks. Stuff. Um, Thanks. Where are you now with the prosthesis and what's it like every day? Yeah, I don't think about it. I mean, it's been, it's been a long time since I really thought about like, Ooh, you're wearing a leg. What's that look like? Um, so it's been a little over 13 years. Um, you know, the funny story is I just I just got a, a puppy recently and, and realized that you need to get up multiple times a night with a little puppy to take him outside. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, just the process of like, how fast can you get your leg on, get the puppy out of his cage and get him outside um, is pretty fast. It's, you know, almost like pit crew fast. It's a matter of seconds. Um, I don't really think about it. It's just something you do every day. You put your leg on and you go on about your life. Um, well, you have to you have to have a, a regular leg and a running leg, right? So you have multiple yeah, I actually have, I have three legs. I have a what I will call walking everyday leg. Um, I have a running leg, and then I have a leg that has an adjustable heel height. So if I want to, you know, wear a pair of heels to go out somewhere, um, the technology affords me that opportunity. Um, when I moved to Washington D.C. Um, for my the second time I was up there, and and uh, I went to Walter Reed to get my prosthetics made there, and I still do. So um, I mean, they do a super job, and. Uh, you know, life's, I've had super, super care from them. Amazing care. Yeah. That's, a, that's incredible. So you can wear high heels and just, you know, go out to a ballroom dancing class. Uh, I, can, I can. I was not a good dancer before. Yeah. And now I have an excuse <laughs> why I am still not a good dancer. Um, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the George W. Bush Presidential Center and your association with it. Right. That started in 2011. He selected 15 veterans to go mountain biking with him. And, um, and, we, and it was in Texas. And at the time I was, um, I was a battalion commander at Fort Hood. And so I went and it was, you know, one of those surreal experiences where you're like, I cannot believe I am, first of all, meeting a former president and spending three days mountain biking with him. So, um, it was, it was still pretty, I mean, one of the coolest things I ever had the opportunity to do. And, um, I think all of us found him to be so genuine. He knew all of us by name. He had, I, I feel like he memorized our biographies. Um, he walked up to me and said, how are the soldiers at Fort Hood to me? That's what he said to me. I was blown away. Um, and so, you know, I've had the opportunity to do that a few times. Um, I went to an alumni ride a couple years later and he said, Patty, why don't, why don't you come back more frequently? So first of all, the fact that someone's calling you Patty is who was a former president is crazy. And I said, I never applied to come back again because everybody wants to do this. And he goes, no, no, come, come back again. Um, so I went back again in 16 and then, um, and then I found myself as a member of their alumni committee. And I have heard him say on many occasions, Laura and I have dedicated the rest of our lives toward helping veterans. And so now there are that little that program, it's called the Military Service Initiative. Um, it didn't really exist in in 2011. The mountain bike ride was really the first thing of I want to what, what can Laura and I do? What more can we do? And so he also does a golf tournament. Now he has a leader development program for veterans. Um, and so it's just a really 
interesting pipeline where, you know, a couple of days riding bikes is awesome, of course, right? Um, and now spouses come along and you're really getting time to share one-on-one where you are in life, where you are in your recovery, what life looks like post-military. Um, so we're really, we're our own little community. Um, and now there are leadership opportunities for people to figure out what's, what does their next chapter look like? Um, so it's a really impressive group of people that I am honored to be part of, honored to be part of their alumni committee for sure. And, and we're having the discussions now of, you know, the president's in his seventies and he's, he's, you know, he's super fit and he's, uh, he has a great time with us, but you know, we all know that this is not going to be something that goes on forever. Right. So now we're taking the reins on our own saying, what can we do in our own little community to keep this alive and going? Um, you know, is it going to be, you know, I live in the DC area. Are we going to try and do a mountain biking event in Quantico or are we going to offer some sort of leadership event where now we're the mentors of this group? So, um, it's a really nice place to be. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to, um, really gather with our peers and, and figure out, you know, how do you, how do you help each other? Amazing stuff. Let me ask you, Patty Collins now would mm-hmm. go back and say what to Lieutenant Colonel Patty Collins the day before <laughs> the day before the injury? Oh wow! Because um, I, I know I, I, would... I think I know what you would say after the injury, right? Like you've kind of recounted <laughs> that. But what would Patty Collins now go back and tell Lieutenant Colonel Patty Collins, who's just about to? you know, take battalion command somewhere and take on the world and run the army and all that, what would she tell her? I think I would, that's a, that's a great question. I've never been asked that. I would tell her, um, it's never how you think it might be. Um, but it's going to be, it's going to be wonderful. Yeah. Perfectly said. That sounds, yeah. Thanks. (laughs) I mean, given your story, like that's exactly what I would think that you would want to say, because Thanks. no one knows what tomorrow is going to bring. And that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I always say that the army has a way of putting you where you're supposed to be. And that sort of happened for you. And um, everything worked out the way it was supposed to. And, uh, you know, I think at least gleaning what I have from our conversation, I don't think there's much you change about with the way your life has went. No, it's pretty great. Yeah, I'm I'm content and happy where I am. Well, certainly, again, uh, an incredible story, an incredible career. Uh, I know we didn't spend much time getting into the weeds of, you know, deployments and missions and everything else, which is what we do a lot of here on the podcast. But uh, given your personal story and all you've had to go through after the fact and, you know, to the Olympics and triathlons and now with the George W. Bush Presidential Center, I mean, you've kind of covered the gamut and everything and really, uh, uh, you know, still continuing to lead from the position you're in now, much as you did while you were in uniform. Thank you. Patty Collins, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. We wish you nothing but thank the best. Thank you. Mine as well. Thank you. Certainly. Thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thanks. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.